Good morning. Great to be together on the Lord's Day and thinking through the truth in our lives. And so as we always do, let's turn our attention to Scripture. Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke 18, where we have been. And I, I have uh, taken an opportunity from the words of Jesus in this section, his words about coming to him like a child and the faith of a child and the humility of a child and the helplessness of a child, we might say the dependency of a child, we've taken that and begin to draw out implications from it as the Lord used it for that purpose. He used it as an illustration of this very idea of how you come to the Lord. And of course, it's a gospel-rich passage, and we have seen that, that Jesus used it as an illustration for the crowds around him, the unbelieving crowds. This is how you must come. If you don't come this way, you will never see the kingdom. He makes that very clear in verse 17. And, and we have begun to draw out the, the basic realities of what it means to come to Christ by faith alone. It was a humility that doesn't exalt self, but comes to the only one able to meet the deepest need. And faith, faith is the the instrument by which someone then comes in that humility because a sinner cannot come to Christ with self-confidence, self-trust of any kind, as if our knowledge is sufficient, as if our moral life is sufficient, as if, as if we can assess our own selves properly in God's universe. No, not at all. Genuine faith openly receives the truth because God is the only life-giving source of it. And so that's what it means to come as a child. We've seen that. We have noted the fact that each day has one simple goal in it then, and that is to strive to grow in grace, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, by practicing these two features, these two attitudes, one being the instrument by which we receive the truth, the other being the attitude in which you come, the self-perspective, to practice humility and trust the Lord more faithfully. We saw last time that, that we must grow in humility, and that means you, you've got to know where you're being proud. We've seen that and done extensive work on that. And then we looked last time at measuring ourselves by the Lord Jesus. And particularly the, the work of redemption, who he is and the work that he's done. We looked at, first of all, his incarnation to compare myself with the grace that is brought to me in, in Christ's incarnation means to look at his condescension, what he condescended to do. He foreloved us before the foundation of the world decreed that he would come and in his incarnation fulfilled that. He condescended to meet our need. We looked as well at his submission, which is what he proved he was willing to do, to bring himself under the, the leadership of his Holy Spirit while he was on earth in his earthly ministry, to submit to his Father's will and to the direction of his Spirit as a man, to yield his human will to the divine purpose. We looked at his submission. And we looked as well at his humiliation. That is what he fully endured in order to do. His incarnation is what he condescended to do. His submission is what he proved willing to do. And his humiliation was what he fully endured in order to do. And we looked at his substitution. That is to say what he became in order to do it. He became sin on our behalf. The Father put our guilt and our sin as to its divine accounting, as to what we would have to stand and face at the bar of justice. God put that to Christ's account. He imputed our guilt to his innocent beloved Son. And that is what the Son then became in order to accomplish our redemption. 
He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ so that Christ's innocence and his holiness could be put to our account as if we'd never sinned and never been guilty. He then, in that sense, became our substitute. We grow in our humility when we look then at his incarnation, his submission, his humiliation, his substitution. And we looked at, as well at his resurrection, what he promised to do, give us life, conquer death, render it powerless, and render sin powerless as to its overall bondage in which we were held. And then we looked at his exaltation, what he deserves because of what he came to do. That's how you grow in humility. Know where you're being proud. Take the scriptures to it, and you end up at Christ. You end up measuring yourself by the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he has accomplished. That second feature then is what we need to address this morning and because next Lord's Day I'll be with my Ruth Spivey, I wanna address the second part of this morning tonight. So the, we'll finish this section in Luke 18 with this expanded study this morning and tonight. We are gonna talk about this whole matter of not only growing in humility, but growing in our exercise of belief in God, our battle to believe God, the exercise of faith. The same childlike trust in the Lord that openly received his grace and salvation is to be nurtured. It is to be cultivated. It's to become fortified in the discipline of grace. That is what we're called to. It is a battle for growth and maturity. It was the call in the gospel, Romans 10 verse nine, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That phrase is, is uh, expanded into this idea of bringing yourself completely to God's truth and welcoming it and embracing it. You, not just, you don't only confess with your mouth because a false confession with no change in your life is just that, it's false. But you confess with your mouth Jesus as the Lord of all, the Lord of your life, and you believe in your heart that he is risen from the dead. His work is complete. His Father has affirmed it. The Spirit then is available to come to the believer. Christ is exalted. When you believe that in your heart, you're saved. The same call of the gospel to believe is found in our call to live for Christ. It is the call of life in Christ from our conversion until our faith becomes sight. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said in John 14, 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. He told that to his disciples who were already in Christ. For we, through the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, 5, by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. That's right. Through the Spirit's power, by faith, we are in this eager waiting period where we serve him until our full redemption is realized. That's why it's so rich to read of the old life being dead and new life has come. Galatians 5 verse 20, for I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Peter will say, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And, and on that basis, then out, out of you comes a joy difficult to express. Even in the sorrows of life, there's this constant resurrection joy of rest in your conscience that never leaves. Because we know we're going to obtain as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Romans 15, 13, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There it is. May he fill you with joy and peace in believing. Believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In difficulties and tests, you ask in faith, James chapter 1, verse 6 says, without doubting. This is our life. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. Everyone who's born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is, is everything about the Christian life. In fact, we're called believers in Scripture, Acts 16.1 and Galatians 3, verse 9. We're called believers. Believing God is at the heart of the eternal covenant in which we have been grafted. God made it with Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And therefore, all true Christians have followed in that same path. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 says, we're of the faith of Abraham. And therefore, he's the father then by, by the example of what it means to believe God, he's the father of all who believe God in that way, both for salvation and Christian growth. So the battle to believe God is everything, and it's, it's all over our terminology. The common everyday speech and the phrases we use, use with one another all speak about this great feature of our Christian life, this central drive. I'm relying on the Lord, we say. What is that if it's not an expression of dependence and faith? We're trusting in a faithful God. That's language of faith. Lord, help my what? unbelief, the opposite of which is what? Belief, faith, trust. It's in our songs, leaning on the everlasting arms, sort of an expression from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he makes your paths straight. It's, it's in the things that we say and write as poetry. All I have is Christ. That's an expression of faith. All I have is him. I, I don't see him now, but I believe in him. And though I don't see him now and trust in him, I have joy inexpressible. He's all I have. Wish we'd bring back that old hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way. Trust and obey. We'll walk by faith and not by sight, sort of a contemporary Getty hymn expressing that very truth. To believe God, to believe him in every circumstance, to trust him more every day for our life from here to glory, to believe in his character, to depend upon his ways and his purposes, to ground ourselves only in what he says is reality. That's the ultimate goal in our spiritual growth. And the Lord blazed the trail. He's the clarion example of our entire life. In his earthly ministry, that's what he did. He said in his prayer to his father in John 17, 19, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. In other words, I set myself apart. I follow your will, Father. I look to my Father. I only say what he wants me to say. I only do what he wants me to do. He's blazing a trail of belief in his Father's will as the man, Christ Jesus. And Peter will say it this way, he kept entrusting himself. To him who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2.23. Why is this so crucial to understand? Well, look, beloved, if this is the instrument through which the grace and the power of Christ work in and through our daily life, then we know that that is the point at which Satan will attack. Every attack of the enemy is to come at our beliefs, to come at our faith. Our flesh, that unredeemed dead part of us, those old appetites, they're ferocious. And they are ferocious for one thing, self-worship. Autonomy, self-worship. I know we don't like to describe ourselves as self-worshippers. We use that terminology now because thankfully Jay Adams brought it back where it ought to be in his counseling uh, studies years and years ago. He, he said, look, we're, we're idolaters, we're self-worshippers. We kind of lost that language in the pop psychology movement. We softened everything up. Well, we, you know, we make mistakes here and there and well, we, you know, we could do better and 
turned everything into sort of a self-help terminology, but actually the scriptures are clear. You worship the creature. When you think about Romans 1, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, do not imagine some totem pole somewhere. That is indeed worshiping the creature, but that is not the ultimate sense of it. To worship the creature is to worship one's self and to not believe in God and worship him and him alone. Our flesh has self-exalting desires that wage war against the Spirit's life-giving power that's also at work in the Christian. And all Satan has to do is mobilize evil influences and target our weaknesses with temptations to walk by sight rather than by faith. That's his goal. And he works to entice us to trust our flesh and everything in the temporal world around us, to trust it, to entrust yourself to it, to walk in it. Anything he can do to tempt us to trust in ourselves and to doubt, if not deny the character of God in some way. That is why sanctification is a battle to believe. You say, Christians today or the church today bought into many of these enticements? Of course, absolutely. Years ago, it was seen in the self-esteem movement, the decades-long belief in self-esteem, which was the idea that self-love and self-acceptance is the key to being whole and fulfilled. The songwriter said, the hero lies in you. One particularly blatant expression of it in song went like this. I believe the children are of, are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to and I never found anyone who could fulfill my needs. It was a lonely place to be and so I learned to depend on me. You think that's bad. Here was the next line. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. This was, this was music to people's ears. This was poetry to the culture. This was the soft, sweet way we thought about tender little children. It made its way into our parenting and into our entertainment and films and books and children's ideas. It's all sentimental, of course, on the surface, but deep down, it's a doctrine of demons. What Satan wouldn't reveal about the self-esteem movement is really that it's just another word for self-love, which is already the fountain from which all of our problems flow. And the opposite, <clears throat> their argument went, well, is the opposite just to hate yourself? No, the opposite wasn't to hate yourself. You could never hate yourself, the Bible says. You could hate the consequences of your life. You could hate how people treated you. You could hate the guilty feelings you feel. But you don't actually hate your own flesh. No one does, the Bible clearly says. So the, the opposite of self-love is not self-loathing. That's already happening. The opposite of self-love is to believe and love Jesus Christ, who is love, real love, genuine love. Christians are called to deny ourselves, place all our trust and hope in the righteous and merciful character of God alone. We're never to pour fuel on self-love that's already in our sinful nature. And so the church bought into those ideologies and that's how faith got disrupted. That's how it weakened. And then there was the, the humanism movement. Humanism basically continues today just in various forms, but it basically said man is good and if we could just soften his environment, we can overcome the world's ills. So what we need is more education and we'll be able to figure things out from there. 
It is rooted in the assumption that man is morally good and if we could just get his intellect where it needs to be and his environment where it needs to be, he could self-actualize. It is the claim that we have the ability to assess life without God's revelation. And worse, we have the power to make good moral judgments on our own. What Satan wasn't exposing in this doctrine of demons was that behind it all, it's nothing more than the worship of the creature rather than the creator. The elevation of human wisdom, the elevation of human moral goodness, which doesn't exist. It was a lie. And... And the weakening of the faith of believers came through syncretism as well. Syncretism is just the mixing of ideologies and religious beliefs, as if if you just tolerate everyone's sort of viewpoints in the sense that, um, that together we can make a sophisticated name for our culture together, then we would have a healthy society. We would have sophistication. We would come of age. And... People put new terms on it, new labels like multicultural studies at universities and, and religious pluralism. And what Satan wasn't exposing was that he was using misdirection to secretly introduce this doctrine of demons to dilute the gospel. Not, not the tolerance of other human beings, that's obvious. Christians always are taught to love even our enemies but we're never to tolerate doctrines that destroy the soul. And this was an attempt to do it at the university level. Multicultural studies and religious pluralism, they say, brings health. Well, it doesn't. And on top of that came pragmatism. Look, we said as a church by then, if we're going to have a voice in the world for the gospel, we have to find ways to attract the culture and convince people that Jesus is your best life. And then subjectivism came flying in on the heels of it. This is to base your life on personal experiences, on what you conclude and believe based upon what you experience in this life. That's where truth comes from for you. And what Satan wasn't exposing behind all that is he wanted us to base our beliefs on what we experience because it turns us into ourselves as the authority for what is true or false. We're the authority for what is meaningful or meaningless. We're the ones who decide what is morally right and wrong or what is worth pursuing and what's worth rejecting. And, and of course, we're already told in Scripture that we suppress God and truth by nature. And so Satan just turns us into what is already corrupt to find answers. Subjectivism came by a lot of subtle names charismatic movement. Whatever I believe I've experienced, that's my grid for interpreting the Bible. That's how I view the supernatural. That's how I determine my theology. That's how I view the work of the Spirit. That's how I see everyday life as a Christian. That Revelation's just all over the map and Scripture's too confining. Or the humility movement was another subjective movement. Well, you really can't know anything for certain. It's arrogance to say that you could be definitive about anything. That has led now to the rise of the contemplative movement. Hey, bring your mind and body to a state of rest and deep contemplation while reading the scripture and listen for God to speak to you. This is, this is all over the church today. And even the subjectivism of the, the religious affections movement, I call it. You know, just think about Christ and think about your redemption and let it stir up all kinds of feelings for him so that the power of your fleshly enticements no longer feels so strong and you obey God only because of the highest feelings of happy gladness. But notice, beloved, the, the most common thread through all of these subtle notions is to trust in ourselves. The Christian life is supposed to be a life of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And all of these ways we are turning away from truth to self. How do we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus? We must become strong in faith. Romans 4, verse 20, Abraham didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. As 
He was growing strong in his faith. The concomitant feature that was there was his giving glory to God, the text says. He, his heart was to give glory to God in what God says. God gets the glory. In what God is doing, God gets the glory. In what God tells us to think and to believe and how to operate and what to obey, God gets all the glory. Mankind and his own will and his own purposes and his autonomy goes by the wayside as God gets the glory. Abraham didn't waver in unbelief because he grew strong in his ability to bring his own will by the power of the Spirit under the truth. And it honored God. It honored God. Sinclair Ferguson said, strong faith in Christ draws on the resources of his grace. That's right. Strong faith draws on the resources of his grace. And let's understand that while we must grow strong in our ability to trust God in everything, faith itself is not the power. Let's be very clear. Faith is not where the power lies God is the power. God alone is powerful. He is infinite in all of his perfections, and therefore, the display of his power is always without limit or flaw. And so it's he that sanctifies. He saves. He sanctifies us by his sovereign power. You say, well, then why must I exercise faith? Because faith is receiving God's truth with a willing, humble, pliable heart and moving forward as God commands because he is sovereign and Lord of your life. Faith is receiving and welcoming the truth with a humble, pliable heart, a will that, that subdues itself, that yields to God, and a moving forward in what God says. So it is his power, but the instrument that we're called to exercise is trust, to trust him. God has always been the power behind it. I think sometimes today we get confused about whether we should strive to grow because we, it's attractive to think about uh, being passive in those things and God must do it all. And, and we have good theology on the one hand. God is the power, God must do it. It's God's strength, it's God's work from start to finish. We know that, right? This great work he began in you, he will perfect. Philippians 1, 6. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Because it is God who is at work in you. So, so we have this good theology on the one hand that says, yes, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God in sanctification. And yet, because it's attractive to sit back, we're... We're sometimes confused about what God wants us to do. And then we hear arguments like, well, you don't want to do this in your own power. Of course I don't. I don't want to do this in my own power. But God alone is the one that tells me when I am doing it in my own power and when I am not. For one thing, if it is done in his power by faith, victory is assured. Victory is assured. Now, I know when we don't have a victory over some sin and we're battling it and we fail, we would like to say, God, you didn't bring enough to the bank. God, the temptation was too strong. You didn't do what was necessary. We would like in our flesh to go there. But that's not a proper diagnosis. The proper diagnosis is when I fail, I did not believe. My battle for belief it was not robust enough. My humility in yielding was not humble enough. My entrusting myself to him was on shaky ground and, and wasn't a complete entrustment in the moment. And therefore, I didn't have victory. To use the words of James, James 1.21, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That is to say that faith is the instrument or means by which we experience the saving and sanctifying grace of God. And therefore, faith is vital because it is our access to this great grace. Grace is vital and therefore faith is vital. And the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus is the ground upon which that grace is dispensed to you and I. So we gain it by coming to him and believing. 
Any talk of progress or growth or maturity in sanctification occurs in the context of grace. And grace is where faith comes to life. And yet faith is the instrument through which we access it. In fact, in many ways, you think about it, it's a bit paradoxical. Even, even the ability to entrust ourselves to God in faith is a gift of divine grace granted to us through the saving love God wanted to express toward his people. So I've been given the gift of faith. You've been given the gift of faith so that you can benefit from the gift of grace. So through faith, we're justified by his grace. And through faith, we rely on God's grace for sanctification. There it is. So without grace, there's no power for spiritual growth. But without faith, I can't benefit from it. I cannot benefit from the grace that leads to spiritual growth. It's like the umbilical cord that God has designed for the nourishment of an infant in the womb. In the same way, that faith then channels the supernatural nourishment supplied by divine grace, as we've explained before. So to walk by faith is to utterly depend upon grace. They're not, they're not at all distinct separate items that have no relationship. No, they're interrelated and inseparable. In fact, in Acts 26, 18, Paul said that believers are sanctified by faith in Christ. So in Christ, I'm eternally set apart as his possession. And then as I come to him, I come to his word, I come to access this great grace that has been dispensed to me in the gospel, and I yield my will and my I bring humility to the table, trusting God's truth over the lies of my flesh. And that grace then is actively dispensed in such a rich way in the moment. Because I have taken, I have taken the step I need to take that God calls me to take. Now, faith grows over time, beloved. Abraham grew strong in faith, Romans 4 says. He... It grows over time, or, or we might say faith becomes fortified. It, it becomes strengthened, or to look at it the other way, it becomes less vulnerable. A, a mature faith is more humble, we could say. A mature faith is, this may be the best way to describe it, more ready to stand on the truth in the moment of temptation. That is maturing faith. How do we strengthen it? How do we strengthen this work in us? Well, God has designed a plan. And he tells us that in that plan, he's revealed to his people in his word that the spirit empowers us toward a stronger faith. So it must be reliance upon the spirit's power, which, by the way, I might say is to rely on his word. Look, I don't want you to be undiscerning, beloved. I don't want you to imagine that there is some sort of felt and experienced walk with Christ apart from the knowledge of and belief in his word. You cannot have a walk with God or with Christ or with the spirit and his power without the knowledge of his word and your submissiveness to it. It is impossible. That whole idea that was introduced, that somehow you can have this wonderful, experiential, feeling-oriented relationship with Christ apart from obedience to his word is a false notion. This is not separate from Christ. This is not separate from his spirit, right? We know this is alive as we have studied so many times. So if you're going to face off with the world and the flesh and the devil on our way to glory, then we're going to have to believe that God is who he says he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, which is the essence of faith. And if that's true, then we must give ourselves completely to the means by which this faith is strengthened. And God definitely uses means. He uses means. Look, you can directly measure the weakness of your life to the, to the uh, atrophied um, means in your life that God has given but you haven't used. You could directly tie weaknesses to those spiritual means, those things God has designed as, as uh, what we need to grow our faith. 
you could tie your weakness directly to the atrophy or disuse of those things every single time. God gets glory from using particular means and drawing us to them. I like what Herman Bavink described with regard to the way God uses things that, that he designed in his plan to be a grace in our lives. He says it by analogy, God illuminates and warms the earth with the sun. He waters the plowed fields with the rain that he causes to fall from the clouds. He builds the house by means of the workmen and he nourishes by means of food. He quenches by means of water. Always and everywhere the Lord binds outcomes to pathways and ends to means. Always. And yet, many Christians are constantly searching for that, that one secret formula. I mean, we are a fast society, aren't we? Just give me the formula. Where's the website link? I just click on it and I'm holy. I click on it and that temptation just falls away like nothing. We're always looking for the grace bullet. We're always looking for that growth in our spiritual life that leads us to some sort of supernatural resort and spa. Look, temptations are gonna come in new ways all our Christian life. Love what Pastor Murray said one time, you, you have a weapon, you have the bullets, keep shooting the enemy. Do not sit down and complain that the enemy keeps coming. Our rest and the victory has already been won. Our rest is fully coming. But you have been given the weapon. You have been given the means. There is victory. There is power in Christ by his spirit. The idea that you're going to have this sort of super realized end times experience right here and now is a mistake. It's a mistaken notion. Look, I want joy in my walk with Christ and and yet it's the spirit that produces that joy. He makes Christ's joy full in me when my conscience is pure and my mind is at rest in trusting God's truth, regardless of the mayhem that may be going on around me. But if you're looking for circumstantial joy or some emotional thing that, that lights you up all the time and, and that's gonna be some constant that you reach, you're pursuing something God doesn't have in his plan. The graces of these means are the lifeblood of sanctification. They are the believer's chief resource in the pursuit of holiness. And God has chosen these through which we are conformed to Christ. And I want to sort of address just one of them in this last few minutes. And then tonight, just give you a list. And they're obvious to us, but just a good reminder that this is how you come to Christ like a child. You come with a strengthened faith and a growing humility. This is what you do. The first, beloved, is clearly and always to be saturated with God's word. You know, it's funny. When people ask me that, what's the, what's the key to developing this in your Christian life? It's like this terminology which was taught to me by my mentor when I first became a Christian. This terminology just flies immediately into my mind and out of my mouth. Saturate your life with scripture. Saturate your life with scripture. Now we, we see this all over the word of God, right? It is Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I love it. I want to saturate my mind with it. Again, the 119th Psalm is never outdone. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, I know when people think about saturation with Scripture, they think, oh, more Bible reading. Well, true. <laughs> You'd be happy to be able to read more than just one page when there were some seasons in the life of God's people when they only had one page, passed it around and you had to memorize every word and that's all you had. We have endless access to those things, so that's true, but, 
But sometimes when we think of saturation, we think, oh, I'm going to have to be a memorizer. I don't memorize scripture really well. That isn't the point. The point isn't memorizing scripture. Lots of scholars through the ages have studied scripture and have memorized huge portions of it. Lots of people who um, name the name of Christ have memorized huge portions of scripture and it hasn't transformed them either in salvation or sanctification. When we talk about saturation with scripture, we're not talking primarily about the content coming into your mind in some sort of catalog. We're talking about believing it We're talking about saturating your life with it so that as you believe it, the Spirit does unique things. Why do you think the life of the church is always about preaching? In our book, Free to Be Holy, Paul Shirley and I did a chapter on preaching as a means of grace. Why do we talk about that? Why does the scripture say in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching? Because when you come and you sit under the preaching of God's word, some things are happening that are unique, as we've talked about. Preaching is a means by which God confronts your will and your mind with his truth and opens up the areas that he wants us to see and brings you to the place where your mind starts to become discerning by the Spirit's power, you see lies more clearly, the truth more richly, and then you're empowered when you leave the preaching of God's Word, you're more empowered to have wisdom in the moment when Satan brings a subtlety. I know sometimes when you come to hear preaching, it's, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I I mean, yeah, it was okay today. Or, you know, it wasn't as good as the, my favorite, you know, online person. Or, you know, preaching is seen like, it's sort of like a speech. Or, or it's sometimes, you know, it's all about uh, uh, what the guy developed in terms of his content or his personality, things like that. But, but who cares what human beings try to make of preaching? What is the spirit intending in preaching? What is he intending? When you come here saying, Lord, I want to grow in my faith. The battle for believing starts here when the word of God is opened. And then when you hear the truth being expressed and explained by someone that the Lord called to serve the church in that way. And not only does he study, it's not really about whether he was clever enough to study a passage or even skilled enough. It was about what the Spirit of God did to renew his mind so that he comes with fire in his bones and he begins to give it to you. And you've come prepared to say, Lord, show me wondrous things that I couldn't see otherwise. Take me out of the academic exercise of words on a page and take me down deep into where your spirit operates on my mind and on my heart. When you do that, you're being saturated with the truth because the spirit goes places you can't go naturally. Your old life will never apprehend, could never apprehend. Only the work of the spirit to open your mind to what God sees. That is what happens when you come under God's word like that. And that's just in preaching, you know, people just look at Christians as strange because we will sit and to them it's a lecture. You will sit and listen to a lecture. Why can't you make it more like a TED talk? Can't the guy get in a golf shirt that's half wrinkled and feel like the rest of us? Can't he put up a nice little table and water and sit there on a high top table and just chit chat with people, put up some nice graphics? No. Look, we're told as servants of the church to bring an an exposition of God's word, to explain the truth, to draw out its implications for the life and heart of the believer, and we're to exhort you in it as if to grab you by the proverbial lapel and say, obey it. I'm pleading with you to come under it. Believe it and yield to it. It is for your life. When you come ready to do that, you're being saturated with the truth. You say, well, what's the net effect? Well, first of all, your heart affirms the lordship of Jesus Christ in your particular life. 
You know that thing when you want to come on Sunday and you already argued with this person and you already ticked about that and you don't like what happened this last week and you're complaining about God because life isn't going well and you come in here, what does the scripture do? It calls you to bow. When you leave here, believing the scriptures, the spirit of God is affirming his lordship in your life. And you must have that to see clearly the temptation when it comes so that Christ has preeminence in everything. You're affirming the authority and sufficiency and power of scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it is breathed out by God. Why do we not act like it's breathed out by God? reveals the mind and will of God and when you come under it, you demonstrate that's what you want. You want the mind and will of God. And then amazingly, amazingly, there you are out somewhere else, away from the body of Christ, away from preaching, away from your study, away from the thoughts, wrapped up in something else you must do in life. And then Satan waits for that moment and he brings a temptation. Something you have not been able to see clearly, not had any robust faith to trust the Lord in, always found yourself in guilt and weakness and struggle, and there you are faced with the enemy, head on some temptation. And suddenly the Spirit of God, because you yielded, because you wanted to behold wondrous things, because you believed God, and you did not waver in unbelief, suddenly the scriptures that you've been hearing, that you heard preached, that drew out implications out of your heart and began to renew your mind, suddenly they're there like never before. You see the darkness of the sin like you've never seen it. You've climbed over an, another level of ignorance into wisdom and discernment. And suddenly there is this stance, this new conviction that says, I see what's happening. And I will not, I won't dishonor Christ, I won't dishonor the Lord like that. That's what happens in the moment. And it's even not something you thought about or prepared for, it's just there. That's why we teach scripture to our children because it gives them the wisdom that leads to salvation. They begin to see truth in light of error. They begin to see evil before it gets a hold of them. This is what the word of God does. This is the means of his grace in your life. The spiritual benefit of being under God's word like that. The spirit brought you here. The spirit called and gifted your disciples and your encouragers. The spirit appointed the musicians to bring encouragement through the truth. The spirit appointed songwriters uh, in, in the gifts and callings he's given to them. And they put down poetry and the spirit uses it in a unique way because it's truth set to poetic music and composition which lifts the hearts of God's people designed by God. And then praise in the midst of God's people. The spirit uses that to inspire and teach and instruct and convict and cause you to reflect. And then there is prayer and something is said in the prayer or your mind wanders into your own prayer and suddenly the spirit of God is using that either to convict you that your mind is wandering away from the service or, or to bring you comfort and encouragement about some need in your life and you just take it before the Lord. And then suddenly someone gifted and called by the Spirit of God and who's done their homework steps up and opens the Word of God and the voice of God comes to you. The Spirit of God does something unique there to drive the truth home. I didn't intend any of those specifics. I cannot. You don't intend to orchestrate any of those specifics because you cannot. It is the grace and means of the Spirit of God when you believe by faith without any wavering. You entrust yourself to it, you grow strong in faith. That's one means. Just saturation with God's truth, with a humble disposition that says, Lord, teach me through it. That's just one. I'm gonna give you a set of them tonight. Bow with me. 
Heavenly Father, you told us that we must come like a little child and a child comes in dependent faith. Your word, your truth, inerrant, infallible, breathed out by you, life-giving. And when we humble ourselves under your truth, we are convinced and convicted. It's just supernatural. And we're drawn to it because that's what you planned. That's what you did in redeeming us. You gave us new inclinations of the heart so that we don't follow after the, the things of our old nature. And even when our flesh is enticing and our will is weak, we are no longer in bondage to it, but the diagnosis is true and right that we have been in a battle to believe. And Lord, we, we must not come as some sophisticated, self-charged, personally energized, full of our own experience and our own assessment kind of believer. We must receive the truth implanted. We must be equipped in it to do the work that we might grow up into Christ-likeness. We must saturate our minds with an open and humble disposition that says, Lord, show me wonderful things. And most of all, we must see that you've planned these means and we can directly trace our weakness to the, the disuse of them every time. And it is, as it were, like you said to your disciples, how long must I be with you? And we sense your conviction. How long must your word be in our midst? And yet we still struggle to believe you. Oh God, help us. Help us to know and believe. Help us to stand faithfully. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus by faith. And to not waver see our faith fortified in these renewing things. But may we use your means, not neglect them. We ask that you'd make us humble like children, dependent, and trusting you as our only life-giving source for the soul. We ask it that you would help our unbelief in the midst in your holy name, amen.